It's always a moment of anticipation. Will it happen? Will it not happen? Will it explode? Always tempted to fill up the space with dad jokes. So I'd like to welcome everyone who's joining us together for our live stream here today. It's only one part of our service here at Chelsea Community Church in City Temple. If you want to be part of the whole thing via Zoom, drop us an email. And if you want to come down and join us in person, you're very welcome. We meet at Chelsea Community Church uh, every Sunday at 11 a.m. Uh, today, I'm just so excited again to have Kate Darnold with us. She spoke a couple of weeks ago on the 14th of August, and afterwards I had so many people come up to me and say, we want to hear her again, we want to hear her again, and, uh, and I was one of those people. And so I asked her, and uh, it tried not to twist her arm too much, uh, but you know, I gave her a sad face, and, uh, and she finally, uh, I think the Lord spoke to her and said, you better do it. And so I'm really happy. And let me tell you, I've heard part of it already. So uh, this is a sermon that you're going to want to listen to again. Uh, so, uh, so anyway, let's welcome Kate. Okay. Sorry. Microphones and I still make me a little nervous. Uh, so let's start with prayer. Um, Daddy God, thank you for today and just time to kind of set ourselves at your feet like Mary did and um, hear what you have to say to us. And so I pray that it would be you that would be glorified, that you would be, um, yeah, that just you that would be speaking during this time and that you would have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, I was kind of touching on the process the Lord has had me in over the last um, couple of years where um, there was just a lot of heart healing happening. And um, today I'm going to kind of go a little bit further on on that. Um, he kind of put it on my heart to make it into a book. And as part of that process, he connected the whole idea with the word trauma. Um, whenever I use the T word, uh, people tend to kind of... Um, uh, check out right there. Um, people think, hey, I wasn't in the military, I wasn't in a horrible car accident, I wasn't abused as a child, and therefore I couldn't possibly have trauma. Um, and so they like just check out or just discount anything I have to say next. Um, but there's actually two different types of trauma. The one that you're thinking of right now, probably, um, it's called overt or type B trauma, aka bad things happen to you. Um, the things I just listed as an example. Um, but there's actually another one called covert trauma or type A trauma, which is the absence of good things. So um, growing up, you maybe didn't have the love that you needed. You didn't have the security that you needed as a child, um, which are things that God's put in us um, to be able to grow well that we need. And so when we don't have those things, that can actually be traumatic as well. Um, but we tend to overlook um, or ignore that kind of thing, but it actually has the same level of emotional impact on us that the first type has. Um, through my research, I came across a gentleman named Bessel van der Kolk, um, who's a psychiatrist who has like 30 plus years of um, treating people with trauma. And he wrote a book called The Body Keeps the Score, 
and in it he says trauma almost invariably involves not being seen, not being mirrored, which I'll come back to, and not being taken into account. So mirrored is like that thing that you do with people um, where you kind of start to take or to understand their emotional state or their intentions and kind of feed it back to them. So um, like when you're picking up on somebody's body language, when they're talking to you like this, you might kind of do that back to them. Or like if they're really excited and their tone's getting higher, like when you're like engaging, like you kind of mimic it back, right? So that's mirroring. Um, but if that's a little complicated, he flips it um, and uses it, this next quote to describe a need that we have. And just being around people isn't actually enough. He would say, um, we actually need to feel what's called reciprocity. So truly being heard and seen by the people around us and feeling that we are held in someone's mind and heart. Okay? Um, and you might be wondering if you ended up in a psychology lecture today um, instead of a sermon. So I am going to tie this all together. But um, I, what I would say is I'm looking at trauma because it kind of describes a way that God created us, right? So if this is a need in our life, if this is something to get, that can lead to us being hurt, then it's a way that God actually created us. So he's created us with that need to be seen and heard and taken into account. Okay? So um, that's how we feel significant. That's how we feel valued. That's how our emotional needs, which he created us for, are met. Um, so I'm going to look at those like three parts, right? So what is it to be seen? Um, often it's just like, oh, I see a woman in the sound booth. She's wearing a blue dress, right? To perceive with the eyes or look at is the first definition of the word. Um, the second is to be cognizant of or recognize. I recognize that person as Karen. Um, a third definition is actually to have knowledge or experience of. Um, so I have experienced Karen's amazing cooking. I know that she's a great cook. Um, and then the fourth definition is to perceive things mentally, to discern or understand. I understand a part of Karen's heart is hospitality, and she uses that gift to make people in the church feel welcomed, um, both here and in her home. Um, so I understand part of her heart in cooking is actually to bless other people. Um, and then a fifth de definition is to accept or imagine or suppose as acceptable. So I have known Karen for how many years now, and I have accepted her as my friend, right? So it's not just I see you, but I see you and I know you is actually part of the definition of the word seen. Um, I think I just made her cry, so sorry. Um, and I pulled those from an American dictionary, so I also went to the Cambridge English Dictionary, um, just because you know that's where we're at, and I didn't want you to worry about my sources. Um, so it's pretty similar, to be honest. There's a few that it didn't include that I wanted to anyway, but there's one that is actually extra that I really liked, so I wanted to note it. Um, and it's that to try to discover. So I'm both seeing you um, and intentionally trying to discover more about you because I want to know you better. Um, and this whole thing around um, seeing and being seen is something I felt like God was speaking to me actually um, recently, or an example of it um, recently, when I've kind of like allowed myself to be waylaid by some homeless people as I'm walking through the city recently. Um, every time like I stop, like just that act of stopping and turning towards them, the thing that like kind of comes out of their mouth almost invariably um, is thank you so much for seeing me and even taking the time to stop. 
And I think it's from that whole thing of like that population as a whole is used to feeling invisible and beneath anybody's notice. And so somebody actually just taking a moment to take the time to acknowledge them means something to them. And I think that's a more extreme example, um, but it means something to us as well. And so then the second area that we're talking about is being heard. And I'm not going to go through all the definitions, but I would say it's not just like being listened to. It's not just collecting information and facts, but it's about someone actually giving you their attention. Um, so even if at the end of the conversation you don't agree with them, you at least heard them out and you understood what they were trying to communicate. I'm sure we've all had that moment where we say something to someone and it goes in one ear and right out the other. Like that feeling that you get from that is frustration and anger, not like feelings valued, right? So there is something to like actually being heard and heard out where you feel valued at the end of it, even if you can't argue that person into your point of view. And then the third area is being taken into account, um, which the Cambridge Dictionary um, defines as to consider or remember something when judging a situation. And I would add, you know, people in there as well. So it's like when someone cares enough about us to think about um, us and keep our preferences in mind, that they remember us. That's, that is a value statement in and of itself. When I, like, when I come back here and I've met somebody two years ago and they're like, oh, hey, Kate, I remember you. Like, I feel valued because they both took the time to get to know me in the first place and then remember me years later, right? Um, so my example in this area is maybe kind of silly, but it's a packet of Mrs. Crimble's cookies. Okay, so you would think, he's already laughing, um, you would think that a packet of cookies is not actually like a very big thing in life, right? Um, it's not expensive, it costs about a pound. It's available in any grocery store in England and you can even get them or something like them in America now. So it's not hard to get. Um, but like the first week I was here, a little packet of Mrs. Crimble showed up on the shelf um, next to where I sit in the living room. And for me, that actually communicated value because Rod was at the grocery store and he remembered they're one of my favorite cookies. And he took my preferences into consideration in his shopping. And so for me, it communicated value because it was clear to me that he carried both me and what he knew about me in his heart and in his mind. Um, so those are like the three different areas that can kind of um, show us how God wants to meet those emotional needs in our life. Um, and maybe you didn't even know that you had them. Um, but because God created us with them, and God also then wants to meet those needs. So then we have to ask ourselves, well, how does he want to meet those needs, right? And so the first and foremost way that I feel like God wants to um, make sure that we feel seen and known is through family. But we didn't all grow up in families where like, that was a positive thing for us, right? And so the second way he gives us um, is through the church through his people, so not the building, but like all of us meeting here today, and even the church wider than those of us gathered. Um, and the third way is through expressing his heart for us directly. Um, I'm not gonna go into family today. I think probably you all know like you felt loved or received as in your family of origin, or you didn't. And I'm not gonna go into the hows and whys of that, but I am gonna talk about both um, being seen and known in the church, and then being seen and known directly with God. Um, and the first way within the church, I feel like you can be, have that need met is through fellowship. Um, and that's kind of a really Christianese kind of word. I don't think most people really know exactly what that 
really means. It kind of, I think, gets defined as like a Christian hanging out, right? Um, but I think there is more to it than that, and definitely more of God's intention in it. So Acts 2, um, verse 42 says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So this is talking about the, what the early church modeled for us. Um, and fellowship and breaking of bread, which we kind of push smush together um, in the church currently probably, is right up there with teaching and prayer. Um, which we, as the Western church, would kind of usually value more than fellowship. But in the Bible, it's actually saying, no, that this is important. Um, and then First John 1 through 7 um, says, But if we walk in light, and he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So light and darkness and sin, yeah, those kind of go together, right? But then you smush fellowship in the middle. So what does fellowship have to do with sin? Um, I would suggest that it has to do with transparency in relationships. And there's something about transparency, like being open with other people, letting them see a part of yourself that you might, not ra you might rather not be seen. Um, there's actually something really powerful in that. So if you're dealing with like a particular sin issue or you're not or anything else really that's going on, but you're kind of not really wanting other people to see and know about that, um, it's still kind of living in that dark place of your heart. The enemy seems to have like an authority over that thing. Um, but when you bring it into the light, when you bring it into God's kingdom and you share it with other people, I feel like um, often that stranglehold, that authority that the enemy has breaks. Um, so you still often have to do repentance or forgiveness or whatever process, but often just that act of being transparent and um, open with people um, is enough to really break a lot of the power of that thing that you're dealing with in your, in your life. But you don't necessarily want to get up from the front and be like, I'm dealing with this huge sin issue to the entire church. Like, there is wisdom in how you use transparency and when you're actually called to use it. And we see actually in Jesus' life what I would call like four levels of intimacy. And as, as you go deeper, the intimacy, the transparency, and access to Jesus increases. So the first level that you see is the crowds. So all the crowds that are gathering for Jesus' teaching and things like that, like they're only really getting parables. They're not even getting the explanations that we read in the scripture today. They're literally getting the stories and that's really all they're getting. They're seeing Jesus from afar. Um, they don't have any real um, intentional access to him. Um, and then you have the next level in the next circle, which I would say is like the 72 disciples. Um, so these, obviously, they're called disciples, so they have some level of intentionality there. Um, they've had some teaching and some understanding that they can then go out and do ministry. Um, so they have a deeper level of understanding and access to Jesus than the crowds did, but not as much as the 12 disciples did, right? So that's like our next circle in. So the, the 12 disciples are chosen. Um, they, when they don't understand a parable, Jesus will actually like explain it to them. He'll, he'll unpack things for them so they understand better than the crowds or probably even better than the 72. And then we also see them breaking bread together at the Last Supper. And, and from what I understand in Hebrew culture, like to actually share a meal with somebody is substantial. It talks about relationship. So they've entered into like an intentional relationship with Jesus. But then there's actually an inner circle that we often don't think about, and that's the three. So when Jesus goes to pray on his last evening, he takes Peter, James, and John, but he leaves the other nine. 
So Peter, James, and John have actually been invited into a deeper level of heart relationship with Jesus. And you see it because in John's gospel, he refers to himself as the beloved. Like he has a heart revelation of Jesus' love for him. He entered into a deeper, more personal relationship with him than even the rest of the disciples did. So it's those closer, deeper relationships where you are more transparent and where your heart is seen and known and where you see other people's hearts and where they're known as well. Um, and that's an important part of being in the church. Um, the second area I would suggest um, the church is kind of responsible for or can meet this need is what I'm gonna call intentional relationships because the American word apparently has weird connotations here so I'm not gonna use that. Um, but I'll kind of explain what I'm talking about. And it's a bit of an up or down. Um, in the up, so it's, yeah, intentional relationships, up and down. So up is like when you have a person or multiple people who are specifically speaking life into you. Um, they're using what knowledge um, God has given them through their life to help you skip a couple of roadblocks in yours, right? So. Um, it's people who are kind of calling you for, forward in, the, in your walk with the Lord or helping you grow in a particular area. Um, that kind of relationship looks like intentionality, um, setting time aside to spend with these people, um, coming with questions that are on your heart to help you grow. It looks like choosing a deeper level of transparency and letting that person have access to your heart so they can call you forward in your relationship with the Lord. And if that's something that you're looking for, it's something you want, want for yourself, and I would suggest you need, to be honest, um, you kind of have to look at yourself first and see what areas that you need to grow in. And then from there, looking at the people that you have access to, the people in your church, the Christians that you know in your world, and looking at their, the fruit in their life and see who might be a good fit for your needs. And then pray about it and actually intentionally ask that person if they'd be interested in that kind of role. And do it with a heart where um, if they say no, it's not rejecting you personally. It's just where they're at. They might not feel equipped. They might not have the time. Um, and just keep praying about um, who God has for you in that area. And then, so that's up. Then we also have to go down. So kind of um, like the, the analogy with the Dead Sea, um, it has a lot of water running into it, but it has no outpouring. And because of that, that's how it gets its name. There's nothing that can live in it. So just getting input from sermons or people or anything else isn't enough. You, for you to actually be healthy, you need to be pouring out as well. Um, so most, well, not most people, but a lot of people feel like I haven't arrived. I haven't been sanctified enough. I haven't whatever. And they kind of disqualify themselves from being able to speak into anybody else's life. But the truth is you're pretty much always farther along than someone else. So there's, or you have an experience with the Lord in an area where someone else might not. So this area might not necessarily look like, you know, lots of intentional time spent together. Maybe it's like getting a coffee after church and they're sharing something about their life. And you're like, oh, I already, I already went, there, went through that. I've been there and done that. This is what I learned. Um, so just being open and letting God speak to you through your own life and your own experiences so that you can raise up other people. And a third area that I would say God uses um, to fulfill this need in our life, especially when we've been hurt, um, is what I would call spiritual family. Um, the theory right now is kind of like if you've been hurt by people, you have to be healed through relationship. And where I don't fully agree that's absolutely true, um, I do agree that God can really use people 
to um, model good marriage if you didn't have an example of that growing up, if you didn't feel loved, where he, he can use people, um, spiritual family in the church to, to pour out that love on you. So you've experienced that and know that. Um, but it's generally something that's brought about by divine um, connection, not just like rocking up to Rod and Karen and be like, can you be my spiritual parents? Um, it's not quite how it works. It's more like something God has like, like ordered for you and, and is creating for you. But if you feel that need in your life, you can pray about it. Um, pray about bringing someone into your sphere who can really kind of take on that level of a relationship. Um, and if you do have one of those up and up level of kind of intentional relationships, discussing it with them as well. So that's how I see kind of the need to be like seen and known, um, fulfilled through God in the church. Now I'm gonna to turn towards how I see God um, himself actually fulfilling that need. Um, and the first way is actually, that it's actually part of his nature and part of his character. Um, he sees us, him seeing us is actually part of who he is. So it says in Genesis, or I'm gonna talk about Genesis 16, um, 13, but I'm gonna explain a bit of the backstory. Um, so it's that part in the Bible where um, Abraham's already been given the promise that he's going to have a son, and through that, he's gonna have a nation. And um, we also have in the story, Hagar and Sarah, Sarah, Sarah or Sarai, I'm not sure where, what she's called at that point, but um, Hagar is Sarah's maid, and Sarah does kind of what we can have a tendency to do, and it's fulfill the promise of God ourselves. So um, she's like, well, there's no way I'm ever gonna have a kid, so how are we gonna make this work? Okay, I know, I'll give my maid to my husband and have a child that way. Um, so we're at the point where she's conceived and Hagar now is looking on Sarah with contempt, is what they put in the Bible, or put in this description. And that of course leads to conflict and she runs away. And we pick up in the part of the story where she's sitting in the desert and the angel of the Lord has come to speak to her. And he gives her this prophetic word about the child that she's carrying. And in verse 13, we get Hagar's response. Um, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. So the Hebrew adds a couple of interesting layers that you might not get with just the English. Um, and the first is that the word here um, is very concrete, not abstract. So it's an, a very real experience that Hagar just had. And it also, um, the grammar that's used isn't what we would call as like the English past tense. It has already happened. Um, it's I am seeing instead, which indicates like it's happening now and it's happening in the future as you go forward as well. So um, God didn't just see Hagar in that moment, God is continuing to see Hagar. Um, and the, another way of translating the you are a God of, the God of seeing can also be translated as the one who sees me. So not only does God see, God sees the world, but God sees me and what's going on in me, um, that knowing my life and looking after me sense of the word. And then when God does see us, he also responds to us. Um, we see in Exodus 3, 7 to 10, which I'm going to read, which starts with Moses at the burning bush and records the conversation between him and the Lord. Um, so it says, Then the Lord said, I, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry, 
because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand, out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So the Lord heard the cries of um, his people when they were in slavery, and his response is to send Moses to deliver them. And not only to deliver them, but to lead them into the promised land. And we know how that goes later on, but that's his intention. And so, God, as, just as we see that God um, responds to us, um, we also see that being seen in the Bible demands a response from us. And so, there's a few examples that I'm going to read through. Um, the first is um, in Exodus 4, 29 through 31. It says, Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all of the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed, and they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction. They bowed their heads and worshipped. So they realized that God's... Uh, after this period of crying out, they realized that God saw and heard them, and their response to that is worship. So God seeing them led to their hearts responding in worship. And then we have another example with Nathaniel, which is in John 1, 45 to 50. Um, it says, Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael to coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered, Because I saw you, I saw you under the, and said, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than this. But to be seen and known by Jesus in that moment, to Nathaniel was a great thing. Um, and his response to it was both to recognize and declare that Jesus was Messiah. He received that revelation of who God was in that moment and declared it out. But when we're seen and known by God, it's not always a positive re response. Our hearts don't actually always respond in the way that I think God's created us for. And we see that with the Israelites um, later on, um, once they've entered, been freed and entered into the wilderness. Um, God calls them to the mountain, I think Mount Sinai, um, in order for them to hear what he's saying to Moses. And they go, um, but their response is um, recorded to his presence is recorded in Exodus 20, verses 18 to 19. And it says, Now when all of the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off, and they said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. So while it doesn't specifically talk about being seen in the scripture, um, when, you, when you encounter God's presence, when you step into that place where he can encounter your heart, um, you're giving God, or you're giving Jesus the opportunity to see and know you. And um, 
the Israelites in this case responded in their fear and the basically their response was to put up barriers between themselves and knowing God for themselves. They made Moses an intercessor on the, their behalf rather than taking up the access to God that they were actually being offered in relationship. And we can do the same thing when um, we don't really trust God and our hearts respond badly. And the woman at the well, at the well does, has a bit of a mixed response, so I'm going to look at her um, as well. And that story is recorded in John 4. Um, and just to set the story again, because I'm kind of picking up in the middle, um, Jesus is traveling through Samaria. They've stopped um, for a break. He's sitting by a well, and his disciples have gone off to like get provisions in town kind of thing. And he's met this woman who's come out to get water, and they've had a little bit of a back-and-forth kind of conversation. And we're going to pick up in verse 16. Um, and it says, Jesus said to her, Go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband. You have had five husbands. The one you, and the one that you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So I'm going to interject here quickly, even though it's not scripture. And my interpretation of this is the woman is seen for who she is. Like every dark corner of her heart just got exposed. And her response is to distance Jesus. It's like the, <clears throat> okay, we're not going there um, kind of thing. And so she picks a safer um, topic of conversation, which we're going to pick back up in verse 21. Um, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship in spirit, the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the... Sorry, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left with her water jar and went away into town and said to people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So at first she deflects, right? And then switches to a safer, safer topic. And Jesus actually meets her where she's at. Um, but in the process of that, he actually sees her need to know. So most of the places in scripture, when people are asking if Jesus is Messiah, he doesn't actually give them a straight answer. You see it very rarely where he says, I am Messiah, I am the Christ. But he tells her the truth. He tells her that he is Messiah because he saw and met her need to know. And then when that need gets met, she goes and she shares her testimony. She goes and tells everybody in the village about Christ. She goes and evangelizes and draws them to him. So we see like at first when it's too personal, when it's touching that place of hurt and shame in her heart, the response is to like stiff arm Jesus. Um, and that often happens in us when we're hurt or we're ashamed or we don't have a good understanding of how God sees us. It's easier to kind of hide those parts of our heart um, and shy away from encountering God 
um, because we're afraid of God's anger or disappointment or however we see God in our own hearts. Um, so I'm going to go into one more piece of scripture, which is the prodigal son, because I feel like it's a really good example um, of how God sees us. And my experience with that story, which is very familiar, so I'd encourage you not to be thinking about everything you already know about it, but to just um, see what God wants to say today. But my experience um, is I tend to like relate to either of the sons, right, more than the dad. So for me, growing up, I definitely related to the older brother, which I'm not even going to talk about today, um, because I felt like the older brother was doing his best for God, um, and yet he didn't see the love and the provision that, he, that the younger brother kind of got poured out on him, and so he got offended and was hurt. Um, maybe you came to Jesus later in life, and you had a party lifestyle beforehand, or maybe you just have a sin issue you're still dealing with, your, with in your own life, um, and so because of that, you relate, you relate more to the younger brother. But we tend to see, I feel like, dad through the eyes of the sons, rather looking, than looking at dad's heart for his son. And so that's what we're going to do today. Um, all right, so just to set the scene again, because I'm going to start in the middle with the scripture again. Um, the younger son um, has asked for his inheritance to be paid out um, while his dad is still living, which obviously you don't usually do that. You wait for your parent to die, and then you get the money, right? Um, so what he's saying, actually, to his dad is, I wish you were dead. Um, it's a huge insult and a dishonor that he's um, doing by asking for this thing. But yet the dad gives it to him anyway. And the son goes abroad. He spends all of the money on what the Bible calls reckless living, which is probably a lot of sinful behavior. Um, until it's all gone, um, he has to hire himself as a servant. And he's literally standing in a pig pen, um, feeding, feeding pigs with something he would rather be eating himself. So that's where we're going to pick up in the story. Um, and that starts in Luke 15, 17 to 24. Um, and it says, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here for hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. And but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and, I, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Sorry, one moment. Okay, so let's picture this scene. Um, according to Rod, the first thing I'll point out is that um, this, him being allowed back into the household, even as a servant, is not a sure thing, right? The level of offense and asking for his inheritance early um, could mean actually the dad's like, nope, get out, you're not even allowed here at all. Um, so he had no... Um, he had no surety that he'd even be received at the level of a servant um, and be welcomed back into the household. So that's the first thing. Like the, the son really doesn't know what's about to happen, but he's stepping out and doing it anyway. And the second is um, 
like if you're picturing it, like the dad is running um, full speed towards the son, right? Um, and apparently in, at the time, that's a big cultural no-no, especially for someone um, who's like the patriarch of a family to actually be running. It was considered childish and it was like lowering himself and other people's opinion um, that he was even willing to do that. But he is so overjoyed um, that he doesn't care what's expected of him. He doesn't care what other people think. Um, he just takes off and runs to greet his son. His heart is so full of love for him that it doesn't really matter in the moment, all the rest of it. And then when he gets there, before the son can even get, his, get a word out, the dad is like hugging and kissing him. He's just showering him with affection. Um, he didn't demand an apology. He didn't demand for the son to like list everything that he had done wrong um, in order to, for him to forgive him. He didn't make him grovel. Um, he just showered, them, showered him with affection. Um, and then the next thing is, the son doesn't even get a word out. Like, he has that whole rehearsed speech, right? Because we hear it twice in that section of scripture um, before that happens. Um, and the dad is already calling for the servants to bring a robe. He's calling for the servants to bring... Um, oh, when he does get the speech out, dad just ignores it, sorry. Um, he's calling for the robe. He's calling for a ring. He's calling for shoes. Um, and if you can picture it, like, the son is penniless, Right? Um, any jewelry he would have had before would have gotten sold to either feed his habits or to feed him. Um, his clothes still probably have a lot of the pig muck on because he probably sold any spare sets he had. Um, so he's literally wearing some of it on him. Um, and like he, because he's so poor, he's not even able to feed himself at this point. So he looks like a pauper. He looks like a beggar. Um, and dad, his first thing he does after greeting him is to restore those markers of what a son looks like. So he gives him new clothes, he gives him a ring, he gives him shoes because he couldn't have even afford shoes, and restores um, the identity, the outward appearance of being a son. And like, if we look at the story, the son really doesn't actually even do much in this. Like, dad's response is so extravagant and all the son actually does is turn around and go home he has a heart revelation that actually the least that my father could do for me is better than where i'm at and literally all he does in the whole story is just turn around and walk home but that act was enough for the father to receive him back and to celebrate him yeah so the dad sees him through his identity he sees him for in God vernacular, how he was created to be. Um, as I was talking through some things, Karen was talking about how all throughout scripture, we see examples of how God not, doesn't look at us where we're at. He looks at us through how, we were, how he created us. And the same is true here. The, son, or the father looks at him as his identity as a son. He looks at him through the lens of love that he has for him. He knows the insult. Dad knows the insult. Dad knows the sinful behavior that was happening in the interim. But the love that he sees him through is enough um, that it just kind of makes everything else secondary. And so, like for us, when we approach the Lord, we can tend to focus on our own sin. We can tend to focus on what's going wrong in our lives or where we're not happy about something. Um, but when we turn towards the Lord, when we give him access to our hearts, and he sees into those deepest places, the places like our best friend or our spouse might not even know about, 
God sees the good and he sees the bad, um, but he loves us anyway, that we are seen through those lenses of love no matter where we're at. And that is the God that we serve. But we then have a choice that when God sees us, how to respond. Are we going to respond positively and worship? Are we going to respond positively and um, declare who he is? Are we going to um, distance him because it's all just a little too scary and a little too much? But regardless, the God that we serve is a God who sees us and knows us and continues to invite us into that place of relationship. Um, so I'm going to just close in some thanksgiving and prayer. So, Daddy God, thank you that you are that kind of God. Thank you that you do see us and know us. Thank you that you put that need in our hearts so we can even encounter you um, through that way of being seen and known by you so we can know you better um, and so we can just share you with other people. So right now, um, God, I pray for each person who's present or, and even watching the recording later on, God, for an encounter with your heart, that they would be seen and known, and that anything that would get in the way of them being able to respond positively to that encounter with you, God, just would be washed away, washed clean with the blood of Jesus, and that you would have your way in each and every one of us, and that we would leave um, and walk out this week just knowing um, a deeper revelation of your heart for us. In Jesus' name, amen.